Okay. Ready for another Friday. Ready for an exam coming up, right? Oh, enough. It's like the last one, right? Hopefully it's better than the last one and I just thought of that. As, as I said that, I will put up those review sheets that I did for the last couple. For If you don't see them later today, email me and remind me because I completely forgot and I don't want to be, don't remind me on Sunday night because if you remind me today, I'll, we'll, they're, they're there, they're up, I just have to activate them. So if you don't see them later today, you know, not right now or, but I'm not going to put them up now, but maybe if I remember during lab, I'll put them up while you guys are working on lab. But we do have an iTunes quiz that is due this weekend. I think we've had about half the class, I think about half this class have gone through it already. So if you haven't gotten that, and it's already been added into your grade, so if you haven't taken it, your grade's going to look a little bit lower than it should be. So once you take it, it'll get added back in. That's sort of an artifact of the way WebCT does grades. It's a pain, but that all gets changed in another month and a half when we go to a new system, which actually does calculate your grades as they go, with, as you turn things in and they're graded. It'll give you your current running grade, and I don't have to physically do it any anymore. Because right now, I have to go and calculate it and put a little formula in to do it. I don't have to do that anymore. Yay! We do have an article review due today, though. So make sure you get that in. Now give me something to read over the next week. And then we have, whoops, no, okay. Then we have exam. Yay, I know. Hopefully better than the last exam. Coming up here on the 31st. So nice Halloween present for you. Could be better, could be, could be taken in spring and get it on April 1st, right? You know, get April Fool's Day. No, exam's canceled. No, it isn't. <laughs> but chapters 10 through 12, so chapters 10 and 11, we've completely finished. Chapter 12, we started on, we're pretty well through it. We should finish that up today. So if we don't quite finish it, then I'll take off the last part of it, but I'm hoping we should be through that today. And then we have a homework that I gave you last time, which is due next Friday. And then another quiz coming up, trying to get through, we got to get through all the rest of the quizzes and we're starting to get down towards the end of the semester so I'm kind of condensing things a little bit. So there's a quiz on some of the similar materials that's coming up that will be available starting on Monday as well. And you'll have again, that won't be like this last one, you'll have all week to work on that again. So. So that's what's coming up. Again, get the articles in today. If you haven't, if some people have turned them in already. If you have not, make sure you email it to me before the end of the day so I get that. And that's due then and then exam. So again, remind me if you do not see those sheets up, I will put them up. I will put them up later today. Okay. They have been helpful? Who've used them or okay. I was just worried after the last exam, but that was probably just the amount of material on it. So this one will be back to just three chapters, 10, 11, and 12, so hopefully it should be a little bit better. I'll try. All right, picture of the day for the day. And we mentioned we were talking about this a little bit before class. There's the aurora. And sort of an interesting picture of it taken from, what, near the base of a tree looking straight up, so you get that Halloween effect. So that wintry Halloween spooky tree effect or something. But what you're seeing, again, we've talked about the aurora, it is the particles from the Earth's atmosphere, particles from the sun interacting with the Earth's atmosphere. So we looked at a couple earlier this year that were very green. This one actually is green, but when you look further up above it, when you're looking straight up, you get a lot of red visible on it. And what that's telling you is where in the atmosphere the aurora is occurring. The auroras all occur very, very high up in the atmosphere, but in some of the higher levels, 
the molecule the atoms that are being affected are different different. So you get more of what it is, I believe, is oxygen up higher. And the oxygen gives some red light, so it actually has a red emission, similar to the hydrogen one we've talked about. And when you get further down, you get more into nitrogen down here, and you get a greenish glow. And then further down, you can even get it into a purple when you start to get the molecules involved. So you get all sorts of different colorings, too. And then apparently it was earlier this week, I found out yesterday that actually the aurora was visible here. So if you had it, if you happened to see it, good for you, I missed it. But it was actually visible down quite well down south. And in fact, they mentioned here it was down as far south as what, Alabama, Kansas, Oklahoma, areas where you normally do not see the aurora on a regular basis. So it was an unusually strong solar storm that allowed things to be visible that far south. This was taken from Canada. This wasn't taken that far south. At least I don't think the trees that far south have lost all their leaves yet. So, but this is actually up towards Ontario. But that's, oops, that's someone in. But that's what we've got, that's what we had. So the aurora again. And again, we'll probably be seeing some more pictures of that as we go through the rest of the, or what, the little over a month that's left in the class, right? Month of six weeks or so left. So, Boy, where did it go? Wasn't it August yesterday? No, it does. So, okay. Questions? Questions on the aurora picture? Otherwise, we'll jump into chapter 12 or jump back to chapter 12. And we were right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So we were looking at now, we'd looked at the sun, we'd gone through what happens to a star like the sun. Now we're going to look at stars that are more massive than the sun. So, and as we looked at here, and we looked at the previous slide, oops, two slides back, two slides back. The sun, as the sun goes through its life, it had some big jumps and jags as it moved around the HR diagram. So it would increase its, it would decrease its temperature and increase its brightness, but then all of a sudden at this helium flash, it had a big jump. It did that on a very short time scale, you know, even to us. Something that took, you know, days and hours and days instead of millions of years. When you get to the more massive stars, they just kind of wander back and forth. They'll get, in fact, they don't even change their, uh, up here, it doesn't really change its brightness all that much. It's just pretty much cooling off, getting bigger, slightly increasing in brightness, but the brightness isn't changing that much as it goes through all these different stages. So it's just, but it's moving more smoothly back and forth. It's so massive that it doesn't get a helium flash. They actually just, helium burning just begins normally, just like hydrogen burning began for something like the sun. And it just moves, again, it moves smoothly back and forth on the HR diagram. So that's where we finished up last time. And then we're looking here at some pictures from the Hubble telescope of a very massive star. So it's not an exploding star, not, not a nova, nova, not a supernova, nothing that's blowing up. But there's an unstable star here at the core. Now here's one picture. And it has these lobes of material that have been ejected off of the star. So it is actually an unstable star and you're seeing all the dust. You can actually see all the dust. It's so hot, you're seeing all this dust around it. 
it illuminates all of that dust around it. Now, normally you wouldn't see that in a much, in a lesser star. This is an extremely massive star, probably on the order of a hundred times the mass of the sun. So we've been talking about stars that were, you know, twice as massive, five times as massive. Those are pretty big ones up the main sequence. When you get up to the top of the main sequence, you're usually used to looking at. You're talking about 10, maybe 20 times the size of the sun. And here you're beating up to things that are 100 times the size of the sun. So they don't, if you get to a certain level, you can't actually form a star. You can't make a star that's a million times the mass of the sun. It won't work. It would tear itself apart before it actually had time to form. And that's, you're seeing some of the instability here. And you can almost see it in different layers. You can see some that are further in as different pulses possibly have pushed material outward from where this star was forming as it's pushing the materials back outward. And you can see some inner, inner and outer regions. And you can also see over time how it's changed. Now this is the same object, right? All the other stars are the same in the picture. But here it was very compact in close to the star. Further out and further out as we take the pictures over a sequence of time. And again, that's time with the Hubble Space Telescope. So you're looking at most over 20 years worth of time. That's moving pretty quickly. That's something that's actually occurring on time scales that we can comprehend. You know, usually I tell you millions of years and I know that it's like that doesn't make any sense. I tell it's fast, it doesn't make any sense. But here you're getting things that are actually occurring are occurring very, very quickly. And things happen very, very fast in these stars. They do not last on their main sequence. They essentially get to the main sequence and they leave it. On, an, on a time scale for astronomy that's very, very short. You know, you're talking a million years, maybe two million years, maybe less than a million years, depending on how exactly how massive that star is. Now, the more massive stars, when you get to those that are eight or more solar masses, really those up to eight that we've looked at so far really do things similar to the sun. They might go a little bit further in their nuclear fusion. So sun can get to carbon, but not beyond that. Some of the other more massive stars, they can get a little bit further beyond it. They might be able to get to nitrogen and carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, neon as you work up. But the most massive ones really are the ones that have the most violent ends, the ones that will explode. They don't really change. Their brightness is believed to stay almost exactly the same. It just cools off. So all they're doing is moving across the HR diagram. And if you had that very upper portion of the main sequence, they're pretty much the ones that are moving almost straight this way. They're moving straight across the HR diagram. They don't change. Yes, they change, can change a little bit. They might get a little bit brighter or a little bit fainter. But their brightness stays almost the same. All that's changing is their temperature is going from 20,000 degrees to 3,000 degrees. So they're getting much bigger. In order to stay the same brightness, if your temperature is going to decrease by almost seven times, that's a big decrease in your energy output. In order to stay the same brightness, you've got to get much, much bigger. So these are the stars that we talk about that are thousands of times bigger than the sun. But these are the ones that will eventually explode. So somewhere along the line, they'll eventually explode in what we call a supernova explosion. And that is the most, most violent explosion we know of 
most violent explosion we know of in the universe. So let's look at the endings first of all. And we'll come back and talk about the supernovae a little bit more. But first of all, if you have the initial mass, I don't need to do it again. You have, if you're less than about a tenth the mass of the sun, you can't become a star. Out of luck. You're not, you don't have enough matter there. You're not going to fuse hydrogen. You become a brown dwarf. So, and essentially it's made up of hydrogen. It's made up of the same material that the sun is made up of, mostly hydrogen and helium. But it never actually ignites any of the hydrogen to helium. It doesn't produce any energy of its own. It will just cool off over time. So if you're less than that, less than about a tenth, roughly. If your initial mass is about to up to about a quarter of the mass of the sun, you fuse hydrogen to helium, and you're done. Sun gets hot enough to fuse helium. That lower mass stars won't. So all you'd have is a white dwarf that's made up of helium. It fused all its hydrogen into helium, expelled its outer layers. It's just a white dwarf sitting there that's made almost all of helium. Most of the stars, most of the stars in the universe fall in the next range. Between about a quarter of the mass of the sun and eight solar masses. Most of the stars that we see, most everything we have is going to be in that range. That's where our sun is. And you'll get a carbon to oxygen white dwarf. Essentially, it got to the point where it could fuse helium. So it got hot enough that helium nuclei could smash together and hold. But never gets hot enough for the carbon to be able to fuse. Again, fusing hydrogen is positive, one positive and one positive trying to fuse. That doesn't take a very high temperature, only 10 million degrees. Trying to get the heliums to combine, that's four times harder. Because you've got two charges and two charges, two positives you're trying to smash together. And actually for helium it's even more complex than that because it doesn't just do two helium smashing together. That doesn't work. That forms something unstable and it breaks apart right away. So you actually have to smash three heliums together at once. So it requires 100 million degrees to actually fuse the helium. That's what the sun, and that's what most of the stars will get to. The more massive stars, there's one more white dwarf possible. If you're a little bit, but the numbers start to get really sketchy here because like we show, I showed you another one, you lose a lot of material. showed you those pictures where that star was pushing off lots of its material, lots of its outer layers were being lost out into space. So the mass could be changing drastically. But there's a neon oxygen right dwarf as you get up a little bit higher and you started to burn carbon and oxygen into neon. Finally, if you get to the highest mass, something greater than about 12, again, not exactly known. I can't tell you that an 11 solar mass star won't undergo a supernova or that a 15 solar mass star will not. But when you get to around that range, then you end up with a supernova explosion. It becomes completely unstable. The star will become unstable. It will have gone through, it produced hydrogen, it did hydrogen to helium, helium to carbon, carbon to oxygen and neon, and so on up, up to iron. Once it gets to iron, it's in trouble. So first of all, what is a supernova? The nova, there are about a million, we talked about the nova last time, which was that little tiny explosion on the surface of the white dwarf that got nice and bright for a little while, for a month or so, and then faded off. These are a million times brighter. 
There's two different types, and we'll look at those in a little more detail after. There's two different kinds of supernova that can occur. But they can actually get, as compared to the sun, we're starting out down here with a million times brighter than the sun to start off at the bottom of the graph. A million times brighter, a billion times brighter, so 10 billion times brighter than the sun. So these are the stars that if one occurs in our, if one were to occur in our galaxy, that it would easily be visible relatively close in our part of our galaxy that we can see easily. It would be easily visible during the day. So you'd be able to see it during the day. It'd be the brightest thing at night, but if you could but during the daytime you'd still be able to see it. And they're that they're that bright. So they would be able to, you know, compete with the sun during the daytime. At night they'd be able to cast an easy shadow. You know, it'd be much brighter than the moon. But they are incredibly bright. They get very, very bright for a relatively short period of time. You know, they zip up there and their brightest peak only lasts a couple of, you know, a couple weeks to a month depending on the type. And then they slowly fade off. And eventually, you know, almost pushing a year later, they faded back down and are not, they're still millions of times brighter than the sun, but they're not near as bright as they were. Not near as bright as they were at that most intense portion. The last supernova to occur in our galaxy that we were able to see, that was actually visible, was, let's see, what is it now? 50, not quite about four, a little over 400 and, not quite 450 years ago, 420, 430 years ago. It's been a long time. And if you remember the time frames we talked about when we did a little bit on the history, Galileo's telescope was about 400 years ago. So it's actually before the telescope. The last, the last two supernovae are actually named for Tycho and Kepler. So sort of before Galileo's time, a little bit before Galileo's time. So before there was a telescope to actually observe a supernova. There has not been one in our galaxy since then. So we're due. Not been one in our part of the galaxy, I should say. Because things can occur on the other end of our galaxy and there's so much dust in the way that even a supernova we're not going to see. We see lots of supernovae in other galaxies, though. Now, we mentioned nova, and I think the question came up as to whether it could happen again. A nova can happen over and over again. A supernova can't. A supernova is a one-time, one-time event. It pretty much tears the star apart and leaves little to nothing left. Might be a remnant left there, might not. But there are two types. I mentioned there were two types. I showed you the graph of the two. And type 1 is called a carbon detonation supernova. And type 2, which is sort of what we're talking about right now, is the death of a high mass star. Type 1 is related to that, but slightly different. Type 1's can, type 2's occur at the end of the high mass star when that big massive star is evolved. A type 1 can actually occur with a lower mass star. So, not a star like the sun. The sun isn't quite massive enough, but on the lower edge of that range. So you can actually occur two types of supernovae. The carbon detonation, which again occurs with lower mass stars, but not while they're on the main sequence. It occurs after they've died. So they've died and formed a white dwarf. That white dwarf can still blow up. So even once the white dwarf forms, if it's at exactly the right level, it can actually blow up, still blow up. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. The other type 2 
which is the high mass star. That's that big massive star, you know, 50, 100 times the mass of the sun that became unstable at the core and just tore itself apart. So one is tearing apart a little white dwarf star, the other is tearing apart a regular star. And that's why when we looked at them, you saw two different things happen. A type 1 is the white dwarf tearing itself apart and it sort of goes up and comes back down. When the other one occurs, it goes up much quicker, decays, gets fainter, but then it sort of levels off for a while before it fades off again. And that may have something to do with the amount of material that's surrounding that star. You know, this white dwarf was just a star tearing itself apart. There's nothing else around it. So this other one has more material around it, so it might level off at that billion times the brightness of the sun. Okay, so let's look at carbon detonation first. As you look at this, it's going to sound a lot like a nova. It's a white dwarf that's collected too much mass from, its, from a companion. So, sounds a lot like a nova, right? The white, we had the white dwarf there, it, was in a, it had a companion star orbiting with it, and it was collecting material from it. So, too much material on the surface of that star meant that it would start to burn on the surface and throw that off into space, and it would get very, very bright, you know, a million times brighter than it was for a couple of weeks. But, when, for a white dwarf star, there's a limit. A white dwarf star has a very, very strict limit as to how big it can be. And if you remember, when we ta I talked about white dwarfs, I mentioned that they, had, they were pushed together so their electrons were essentially touching. Their electron orbitals were as close as they could possibly get without repelling each other. So eventually, if you get enough mass, you can, you can push them through. If you've got enough matter, you can push that down, condense it more. That'll hold it up to a certain level. But eventually, and that key number is 1.4 times the mass of the sun. That's why I said the sun will never get there. Because the sun's already only got one solar mass. You'd have to put so much matter on it, it wouldn't matter. But if it, the white dwarf mass exceeds 1.4 times the mass of the sun, those electrons can't push each other apart anymore. They give up. They essentially give up and they fall in. So the core starts to collapse again. And that collapsing increases the temperature. And all of a sudden, you have this star that was mostly carbon. You've increased the temperature high enough to ignite carbon burning. But the whole star is essentially the core. The whole core is as dense in the inside as the outside. It's all very dense. And instead of fusion starting at the center, it starts throughout the whole star. It's gone. It tears itself apart and explodes. So it essentially explodes the whole star and sends out a carbon explosion and sends out all the material out into, the, out into space. So in a way, it's a good thing. You don't want to be close to it. But in a way, it's a good thing because that actually gets things like carbon and nitrogen and oxygen out into space. Because while the sun is producing all this, going to produce all this carbon, it's going to fuse hydrogen to helium, then helium to carbon, it's all going to be locked in that white dwarf star. It's not getting back out into space to form planets and things like us, you know, and we kind of like having some carbon and some oxygen are kind of nice here because they're good for us. Things like iron, you know, we need those. But it tears the star apart. It will completely tear the star apart and there's usually, usually nothing left. So usually that'll just tear itself apart completely and it's gone. 
You get that incredible bright star for a short time, but afterwards nothing's left. Those are interesting ones. The other interesting thing about these ones, you'll see us come back to them again in a few weeks when we talk about determining distances. The very nice thing about this type of supernova is that they all form from exactly the same type of star. They're all a white dwarf star that was 1.399999 solar masses. Just under the limit. Got too much mass, boom, it exploded. So they're all exactly the same. So they all should get exactly as bright. It should be the identical explosion. No matter whether it occurs in our galaxy or this galaxy, they should all be exactly the same. So we use them, they should all get just as bright. So we can use them, once we see them in, the, in a distant star, we can use them to determine how far away that distant, gal distant galaxy is. Because we know how bright they're supposed to be. We know how bright they really are. If we know their absolute magnitudes, and we can get their apparent magnitudes, that's the easy one, then we can say, oh, we know how far away that is. That's our best way of getting distances for very distant galaxies. Because we can see those out a good chunk of the way of the universe. And it actually leads to some interesting things, but I'm jumping ahead too much because that comes up in later chapters, so we'll come back to it. Okay. So here's looking at the two different types of supernovae. We have a binary star system starting here. One star becomes a white dwarf. So here's just two regular main sequence stars. One becomes a white dwarf, gives off a planetary nebula, said that's like the star like the sun dying. That doesn't do a lot. You know, it doesn't damage the other star. It just spews those outer layers, expand out of into space and form a planetary nebula. And you got the white dwarf left behind. As this star goes through its life, it can become a red giant. And depending on what the mass of that was. Now, if this was a star like the sun where that core was only going to be, you know, half, 3 quarters of what the mass that was left, it's never going to connect, collect enough matter from that star to explode. But if it was right at that limit, right at that 1.4 solar masses, it can collect enough material to push it over, the, over that limit. The electrons can't hold it up. It starts to collapse. It heats up. The carbon starts burning all at once through the entire star at the same instant. And the star tears itself apart and probably doesn't do a lot of good for the star that gave it that extra energy to that little bit of extra material to push it over the limit either because that's a very massive explosion. So that's type 1. Type 2. We had a normal star. You fuse all the elements up to hydrogen. You go hydrogen to helium to carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, neon, through aluminum, silicon, all the way up to iron. So you can get up to iron here. Once you get to iron, you can't get any more energy out of it. If you take two hydrogen nuclei and smash them together, you can do it if you got enough temperature, but you lose energy. So you don't gain any energy by putting two hydrogen atoms together, or two hydrogen. You do gain energy by putting two hydrogen atoms. You don't by putting two iron atoms together. Iron is the most tightly bound element on the atomic on the periodic table. So if I smash two iron atoms together, it takes energy away, which cools things off, which collapses things, which causes it to go unstable again. And eventually, it just goes completely unstable. Things collapse because it's sucking up all this energy. You're fusing the hydrogen. You know, it's smashing it together and it's fusing it, but it's losing energy. 
and it's losing energy every time it does that, cools it off and the star collapses. So it collapses, rebounds, and explodes the outer layers out into space. So the shock wave will tear these outer layers out into space. So those are the two types. Now what's left behind is a remnant left behind. So these are a couple examples. The Crab Nebula is shown here. And I think we looked at a picture of that earlier on when we looked at some of the remnants. That's the remnant of a supernova explosion that occurred in 1054. So not quite a thousand years ago now. And you can actually measure, you can actually take pictures of it. They take pictures of it at different times. You can measure how fast it's expanding. And not one I'm doing this year, but it's one I'm looking at trying again, is that you can actually do that measurement. You can get the pictures, measure it, and actually do a lab to determine, see if you can calculate, if you can figure out that it did occur in 1054. It's a good little, nice little lab. You measure a couple pictures and measure, find some filaments and measure them in two different pictures and try to see if you can determine it. And it works out pretty well for the most part. But you can work backwards. You could work it backwards. And doing it in more detailed analysis of it, you can get back and find out exactly when it occurred. And it was in the year 1054, there was a large star that exploded and left this remnant behind. But that's where we're getting all this material back into the interstellar medium. So we're sort of talking about this cycle. As I mentioned at the very beginning that there was the cycle of star formation. Well now we've got some material getting thrown out into the universe, into the galaxy, that actually has things like not just hydrogen and helium in it. Remember, everything formed, the universe was hydrogen and helium. So in order to get all this carbon and oxygen, there it all is. So it's throwing a lot of carbon and oxygen. And over time, all these supernovae in the early universe made up all the stuff that we have that helped to form our sun. So we actually have you know, things like carbon and we have oxygen to breathe. And you know, we have solid surfaces. We're not just standing on a big ball of hydrogen and helium, which would be everything that would be here otherwise. And a lot of that had to come back out into the universe through the supernova explosions. The planetary nebula put some material out too, but remember, that's only the outer layers of the star. It never underwent nuclear reactions, so it's still hydrogen and helium. So when the sun does it, all the sun's going to put back out into space is hydrogen and helium, for the most part, and little bits of other stuff. Now, this stuff should look familiar. We did a lab like this last time. What we're going to look at is a series of HR diagrams. And I said, you're not going to, you're going to get to see these. You still get to see this chapter. You're going to see them even the next chapter again. When we start talking about galaxies, we'll still be talking. Next couple chapters, we'll still be talking about them. But we're looking at the clusters of different, of the same, uh, the clusters, how the, how the masses of the stars affect this. So if you look at a star cluster forming, you know, here's a star cluster forming right now. So all the stars are on the main sequence, almost. Stars don't all form at the same time or the same rate. So these stars aren't leaving the main sequence. They're still coming down to the main sequence. They're still following their tracks from up here in the protostar phase and coming down. Those are less massive stars. They form slower. It takes them more time to form. So when we look at this first picture, which is about 10 million years later, the next HR diagram, we're still waiting for these little stars, these little tiniest stars are still working their way towards the main sequence, taking their time, 
even though these bigger stars have already formed and are leaving. So these stars that formed up here are already on their way to already on their way towards the red giant branch in the end of their lives. And you sort of saw that a little bit in some of the diagrams on that. Some of the very the younger star cluster looked like it was starting to turn a already a little at the top. So a very, very young cluster. So for example, 10 million years later, we're still waiting for all these stars to form. They're not leaving. They're still going this way. They have not formed yet. They have not fully begun to burn hydrogen. They have not, fully, they have not yet reached the main sequence. So after about 10 million years, you start to lose a few, use a few. As you go a little further along, how about 100 million years? You've got almost all the stars to the main sequence. Now just those few little coolest ones down here are still working their way there. But, you start, but you're seeing more turn off. There's nothing in the very most upper left hand of the main sequence. It's gone. And as you go through 100 million years and a billion years, those stars just slowly work their way down the main sequence. They'll disappear. There's nothing up there. And they're moving off. And you start to see more and more red giants. And by here, by the billion year time frame, everything's on the main sequence pretty much. You've gotten almost everything there. But, again, you're, not, you're seeing them slowly move off. Now this is what we looked at two of these last time. We looked at one for a very young cluster. So something maybe 100 million years old. Not quite as young as the first one we looked at there, but maybe something more like this. Almost all the stars had made the main sequence. But you were starting to see a few that were just starting to turn off. Then we looked at one that was much older, even a little bit older than this, and we'll see that coming up in a coming slide. But as you go further down, you see that you start to see more stars up here. That's because they last longer. As you go further down, those very young stars, they go through all their stages very quickly. Remember the time frames for the sun were 10 billion years on the main sequence and then some little amount of time afterwards. Well, these stars will take only a million years on the main sequence, two million years, but they only may take thousands of years in the red giant region, so we don't see them very often. You've got to catch them right in that phase, that thousand years. It's a long time for us, but in the time scale of the universe, that's, you know, they were there and they're gone. They don't last very long. But you'll see that as you get down towards older and older clusters, that turnoff gets a lot easier. And when you did that lab, you probably noticed that it was kind of difficult to determine that one that was way up to the top. It was a little more difficult to determine where it was turning off up here because it sort of looked like it was almost straight up. So it was difficult to determine that. But when you looked at the second one, it was a lot easier, hopefully. After 10 billion years, we see more of the diagram we've been seeing. You've got a very well-defined, the main sequence, the lower part of it is real good. You have the subgiants up into the red giants, and then you have the horizontal, horizontal branch stars, and you go up again. This is something like what you saw on the last, on the second diagram of the globular cluster. Didn't plot you any white dwarfs there, but if you had some white dwarfs on that, you would have gotten a couple points down in here. You're actually starting to see the white dwarfs appear. You didn't see those in the older ones, in the younger clusters, because they hadn't had time to form yet. They need the lower mass stars to actually have finished their lives. The upper mass stars are the ones that would have blown up. But you definitely get to see all the different features of the HR diagram. You see the main sequence, giants, horizontal branch, white dwarfs, even up into supergiants up in here, the biggest stars. 
And again, you start to see, again, you start to see the main, you start to see the white dwarfs. And then as you go through time, if you go, this is 10 billion years later. So 10 billion years means right in here would be stars like the sun. So stars like the sun would just be leaving. As you go further and further time, it doesn't change a lot. You just go further down the main sequence. But it can take, this is 10 billion years, it can take hundreds of billions to a trillion years for some of these smallest stars to actually run through their lives. Okay, question? Now here's a very, this is a prominent cluster in the northern sky. H and Chi Persei, it's a double cluster, so there's one cluster. You can see there's one group of stars here, a cluster, one group here. This is an open cluster, or two open clusters. They're very, very young. And as you can see the diagram here, it's very difficult to tell where that is occurring. Where is the turnoff point? It's very difficult to tell exactly where that turnoff point is on the others compared to the previous slide, for example. You could see very easily. We know that some stars have turned off because there's some red giants up here. If we look down lower, there'd be stars that were just coming down to the main sequence. But it's a very, very young cluster, no more than 10 million years old. And even though it's only 10 million years, it still has stars that have already reached the red giant phase, that have already gone through it. So some of these stars do not last very long. They may only last a million years. Some of those most massive stars that have already formed. Now an older, a little bit older cluster, this is the Hyades cluster in the constellation of Taurus. Another open cluster. So grouping of stars here. It's about 600 million years old. And you notice, there's nothing up here, right? There's no stars on the main sequence in that upper part of the main sequence. There's still a few red giants, and there's some white dwarfs forming, but nothing else. The main, everything else is just sitting on the main sequence. So, but we've lost. All of these stars are gone. Some of them have gone. The most massive ones may have blown up. Some are in the red giant phase. Others have gone through and become white dwarf stars. So as you've gotten down that far, so about 600 million years. And that's an example there of the Hyades, Hyades cluster. As we go a little bit older and look at a globular cluster, we start to see something that is about 10 to 12 billion years old. And you get, again, a very nice main sequence. You can, see a very, you can definitely see this, the turnoff much easier than you saw in the previous ones. There's a lot more stars here. And it's go, things go a lot slower. And you can very definitely see the red giants. They're going up to be red giants. They ignite. They become, they ignite helium. So they're burning hydrogen here. They're working their way up and increasing their temperature until they ignite and burn helium. Then they settle down over here on what we call the horizontal branch for a while. After that, they go back up again and then around to become the white dwarfs. So much, much older. There's no stars on the main, the main sequence ends down here by stars like the sun. There's nothing up here on the main sequence. You may go through it with some of these other stars, but they're a completely different part, part of it, and they don't form until the younger stars have gone through their lives. So that's a much older cluster. The globular clusters were able to see much older just because they are, they're held together. Those open clusters won't make it to this age. 
they'll all, all the stars will slowly spread out into space. They'll diffuse out into space and you won't see it as a cluster anymore after 10 billion years. They'll just be random loose stars. Whereas the globular clusters are the ones that are actually bound together and held together and we can actually see them. Even 12 billion years later we can see there's no young stars in there. There are no very high, there's no O stars, no A stars, no B stars, no F stars. You're just getting into the G's. And if you could come back 100 billion years later, it would look similar except this turnoff would have moved even further down the main sequence. So, finishing up. Cycle of stellar evolution. Again, it just goes, it goes through this whole cycle. The stars form from the interstellar medium. You can start anywhere you want. We happen to start there. That, those, those clouds collapse, condense and form stars. So stars start to form. They go through their lives. And at the end of their lives, whatever happens to them, whether they're a more massive star or a less massive star, they eventually push some material. Some of that material goes back out into space. So that material gets back out into space and becomes the next generation of stars. So when we look at the galaxy, we see stars. We see some stars that are very, some very old stars that don't have a lot of heavy elements in them. Go back, heavy elements are anything other than hydrogen or helium. There are some stars that form very early in the history of the universe and the history of the galaxy that don't have a lot of stuff other than hydrogen or helium in them. Then, as, the, as their more massive counterparts had formed, and these are the young little, these are the little tiny ones, old ones, they're still there, but as there, when more massive stars formed like that, they would have put out through their explosions, through their supernovae, they would have put out things like hydrogen and carbon and oxygen, carbon, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, out into the universe. And made things so like another generation of the stars like our sun would then be able to form planets like ours. So it took these supernova explosions in order to form us. So little bits of you were once in a supernova explosion. Or probably multiple supernova. You know, one supernova doesn't put off near enough material to make, a, make planets. You'd need multiple supernova explosions, many thousands and millions of them over the early history of the, of the galaxy. All right. So let me go through the summary here. So just to review, we skipped the beginning. We skipped st stage seven. Stage seven was the main sequence stage. Nothing, ha nothing much happened there. Once the hydrogen is gone, there's no energy production in the core, but there's a shell surrounding it that still is producing energy. So the material in the interior is still collapsing, condensing down, heating up, and the outer atmosphere expands outward. So that sort of that shell, hydrogen burning shell is right in the middle and some areas get pushed outwards, the outer layers, it pushes them out and the inside continues to con contract. Helium begins to fuse when you hit 100 million, 100 million degrees. So helium will then begin to fuse in the core. In a star like the sun, we're talking about the sun here, it occurs as a flash. That core became so dense, it took so long to heat up that temperature. Now it takes a lot of energy and it starts to burn. It comes back to what we talked about with the type 1 supernova, right? I said it occurred simultaneously within that entire core. Well, you're doing almost the same thing in this star. 
it's occurring throughout that entire core at once, and it starts to expand. The nice thing is here, it's got that envelope. It's got all that material around it to kind of hold it together. So it starts to expand, and eventually it reaches, it reaches a stability. It doesn't tear itself apart the way the white dwarf star does. So the core collapses. The core continues to collapse after that. You, now you've fused helium. Now you've got carbon in the core. Once you have that, for a star like the sun, you're done. The carbon core is just going to collapse and remain nice and solid. And the outer layers are going to slowly, they've gotten very, very big. It's gone way up to the upper corner of the HR diagram. And eventually those outer layers just expand off into space and are never, and make the next generation of stars. A nova explosion is a white dwarf star. So it's a white dwarf star in a binary system. So there's two stars together. And that star gains a little bit of material. It's close enough to its star, to its the regular main sequence star or red giant star that it collects material from it. And it builds up on the surface. That surface is very, very hot and very, very dense. It's very high gravity. Eventually, if you get enough hydrogen there, it'll explode. It'll begin an explosion just on the surface of the star and make that star incredibly bright for a short time. That can recur again and again. So a nova can occur every 50 years, 100 years, 200 years. It can occur over and over again. A supernova cannot. So type 1 supernova, jumping a step here, cannot. Once that occurs, you've exploded. That whole white dwarf star started fusing all at once and it tore itself apart. It's not going to happen again. You're not going to be able to put all the pieces back together and make it, make it another, make it a white dwarf again. So once a type 1 supernova happens, it's done. The type 2 supernova, going back, is the most massive star. Again, they get up to iron. You smash two iron atoms together, you lose energy. But if the temperature is hot enough, it's still going to do it. It's going to form them and it's going to start sucking energy out of the star, cooling off the core, causing it to collapse. And it collapses down as dense as it can and then kind of bounces. So sort of like a bounce, it'll hit, hit a solid, solid point and bounce back and explode outward. Everything we see, all the heavy elements, are formed in the core of a star or in a supernova. Those ones don't help us too much in forming planets. Well, you can form hydrogen planets like Jupiter, but we can't form planets like the Earth. Because if they're formed in the stellar core, they're, you know, they're stuck there. The sun is going to form lots of carbon. It'll form some carbon and some nitrogen and oxygen and probably even some neon, little bits. But it's all going to be locked up in there forever. It's never getting out. So it's stuck. It doesn't do us a lot of good. The supernova explosion helps. That actually tears it apart and throws it back into the universe to form new stars. So the supernova explosions, while interesting for other reasons, are also Especially interesting because they allow all of the stuff that we have, you know, here in this room, everything that's not hydrogen or helium, would have been from a supernova explosion at some point. That's the only place it could have formed. Finally, we looked at stellar evolution, and we tried to look at a number of different examples by looking at the star clusters. We looked at a number of different star clusters to see how stellar evolution worked, and you could see how things progressed through time. We looked at very young star clusters and saw where those stars were falling off the main sequence, were coming off the main sequence, and we looked at some older clusters and you could see as you went from a younger cluster to an older cluster, you could see how that turnoff point moved lower down on the main sequence. And that's it. Okay. I couldn't remember if I mentioned the cycle of stellar evolution again on there or not. 
So that finishes up chapter 12. And I'm not with two minutes going to start chapter 13 since we're about done here. So I'm just going to stop there, chapter 12, since that's your exam right through there. That works out perfectly. So I don't have to give you anything else beyond that. We'll start chapter 13 on Wednesday. So you can go ahead or take, take your break now and then we'll come back at 10 and go ahead and start the, we'll start the lab.